Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. There are still a lot of question marks around inflation and earnings expectations in 2023. Portfolio manager Ramona Prasad joins us today to provide her insights on dividend investing and what she sees in store as we enter the new year. For Canadian investors, Ramona manages Fidelity U.S. Dividend Fund and also sub-manages several mandates, including Global Dividend Fund, as well as private pools. With host Pamela Ritchie today, Ramona reflects on markets in 2022, looks at valuation in 2023, and shares which sectors and regions are currently appealing for dividend investing, among other topics. This podcast was recorded on December 19th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. The question of valuation walking into 2023, what what do investors really after a year like this perhaps need to be thinking about on the valuation front? Wow, that is going straight for it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I like it. Uh, the simple answer is that valuation is not obvious. Uh, the market really wants to be optimistic about obviously the good news of inflation subsiding. Um, and so when you look at this, you know, a simplistic way to look at valuation right now is let's take the S and P 500, a broad market with a lot of a lot of global um, businesses in there. Uh, and on an earnings number that has a lot of negative revision risk, it is still a high teens multiple of that number. So, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative investor. Um, I do really well um, in drawdowns. So that's where the strength of the strategy is, is downside protection. Actually, do you have recent numbers uh, on that? Because we're coming up to the end of the year on sort of the capture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and exactly. I'll, I'll tell you the numbers. Um, but I do really well. So I'm, I tend to be more conservative. So I'm not going to be that optimistic unless valuation is obvious is where I'm going with that. So yes, the numbers are for tenure, which is about 10 years or so on this global strategy. The down capture is um, 81%. So if the market goes down one, we're only going down 0.8 or so. And the up capture tenure is 99%. So that's a pretty wide spread. So the market goes up one, we go up 0.99, for instance. Um, and that's what we're trying to drive the strategy. That's how we're, and typically that's the most recent. Typically it's probably mid nineties and around 80 um, or low eighties. But what we're really trying to do is have a very wide spread between those two outcomes as driven by the down. So we want a great sort of um, down capture profile, which protects the downside, which actually mitigates a lot of the risk, which is what gets you a risk adjusted return or an information ratio around 0.6 for this strategy over time. So your alpha per unit of tracking error. Um, But what I'm trying to say is I'm not going to be really bullish on valuation 
the way maybe a, an average market participant might be today, rightfully, because I'm that kind of investor. I'm a downside protection investor. So at a high teens multiple of a number that needs to go down, which means that the multiple is actually higher than high teens, it's not obvious. So that's my simple <laughs> answer to valuation. There's actually a more, a more, an even more nuanced answer if you'd like it. As you will tell us, it's a, it's a different market. And so you just wonder sort of where that risk bell perhaps um, is now for investors after after a very interesting tough year in some areas, you know, does that bell ring louder? Do you think? Maybe you yeah. don't know. I don't know. And you're right. You're right to acknowledge that it has been a very hard year for um, for investors overall. Um, downside protection strategies have, have done much better. It's been a downside protection type of year after a very long period of those strategies doing poorly, um, a very long period of more up capture investors doing extremely well. And so the shift, when the market shifts from an up capture type of market, a market that rewards, you know, the investor that has something over one in their up capture profile and shifts rewarding that downside protection investor, that is so painful. And that's what we've seen. So to me, um, <clears throat> One of the ways that you can assess the risk of that kind of shift is is valuation. So you rightfully start out with that kind of metric, that framework in this discussion. Valuation is risk. Um, and perhaps, you know, when there are different ways to look at it. You could look at valuation dispersion to figure out how much fear there is in the market. There's not a lot today, not a lot of fear in the market in an aggregated sense. There are different types of fear. But if you aggregate it all together, not a whole lot of fear. And that that worries me at a high a high teens multiple of a number that needs to go down. So if you were looking back on this year, there were points at which um, the stuff that has been really working for like a decade just got very, very expensive, no matter how you measured it. And so you could have you could have seen that as risk if you're willing to view valuation as as risk. Um, and so that's why. Uh, someone like someone who invests the way I do, or certainly I look for um, look for value as a gauge of where the risk is and where it isn't. Let's take a look at at, at the macro piece, which you've been pointing to in, in many of your discussions there. But if we just sort of go to, for instance, what the Fed said last week, and every other central bank around the world too, but um, there were some very uh, hawkish statements, shall we say. But the Fed's certainly talking again down the market in, in some way. I mean, how do you look at this? Is, is peak inflation is past us? I mean, where do you look at the inflation story? Where do you look at the rate story? Give us the macro view from your perspective. I also think, I'm going to go back to your last question to answer this question. I also think um, things that are hard to predict is also risk. Right. So the way that valuation is risk, in my framework anyway, and it's totally legit that that other types of successful investors invest differently and would not and then view risk differently. That's how I view risk. Another form of risk is stuff you can't predict. And the quote unquote stuff of the last, let's see, you know, the, the post GFC era is the, the biggest factor is interest rates. So it's been very, it's been a one way direction down. It accelerated, it's been one way direction down sort of you could argue in this entire globalization era for lots of legitimate reasons. Um, and you can argue that it, it accelerated, it, um, the slope steepened um, right. going down post-GFC. 
Um, so that's risk in the sense that it's unclear that you could predict you could predict the down necessarily. You could predict the steepening of the slope, and definitely hard to predict that that slope changing or even inflecting. So now I'm talking about like second derivative, right? And that that's where we are today, and that's what's caused this like shift in what's being valued and what's being devalued. So what I mean by that is all of a sudden a pitch uh, uh, interest rate picture that is that is changing in a profound way on the back of inflation, inflation being the catalyst, that's hugely risky. And what I'm trying to say is stuff that you can't predict is really risky. And so in my mind, you kind of have to wait for valuation to sort of lead you and guide you. So what um, what worries me, so this is, this is a way to answer your macro. What worries me about the macro is that it still is based on highly, macro sort of definitionally is unpredictable. We've got a lot of unpredictable variables. And one of the reasons that I'm not, as optimistic as the market remains is that these factors um, that are driving the market, I view it as geometric risk. So risk that multiplies, not risk that adds. And that's because Interesting. the okay. level of unpredictability is higher than average. I can't quantify that. I suppose we could sit down and try, but I, I don't think I need to quantify it. So let's think about it. You've got like energy, you've got war, Sort of nuclear blackmail in Europe, energy security issues. You can't really predict what kind of winter you're going to get, right? So then you put that on top of energy security issues and sort of a what appears to be to a Western observer an irrational player. And I caveat it that way on purpose because a non-Western observer might see it differently. Um, that's a lot of compounded risk. So that's multiplicative risk, not additive risk in my mind. So to me. Um, that means that valuation needs to meet a sort of higher bar, which is in effect a lower valuation to be interesting. So that's how I think about the macro. You've got a lot of different types of risks that are hard to predict. And when they become hard to predict, they multiply. And in a way, I think I said this last time, the human brain, the typical human brain, <laughs> um, doesn't really do geometric math especially well we saw that with the gfc so that worries me um about the macro you've got and I, I didn't even mention all the risks right you've got this there's just a lot of risks that i think are multiplicative multiplicative and we have i'm not sure we've really had a clearing a proper clearing event so what could be a clearing event um you know people who have been heavy in like nasdaq stuff would say that we have because of the the, the really profoundly painful derating we've seen there we haven't had much of any systemic failure. That tends to be pretty good clearing. Broad market indices have gone down, um, but I'm not, you know, at the current valuation, it's not clear that they're done going down. Um, so these are the things that are on my mind. Now I need to re remind you, I'm a downside protection investor. <laughs> so this is how I'm going to sound when you've got a high teens multiple of a number that needs to go down in terms of valuation. Right. And I may not, I fully recognize I may not be right. We may have seen the bottom already. I tend to be okay, even if we've seen the bottom already, because I'm, you know, even the 99% notwithstanding, I'm not, I'm more of a downside capture investor than an upside capture investor. So I'm okay, even if we've seen the bottom already. I, I don't think we have. So, so just to sort of ask one more question into that. So, I mean, to some, you're, well, Europe's had actually a pretty, 
impressive quarter <laughs> when you think about um, everything that you've mentioned. But that said, I think it, there's still cheapness in, in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And is, for instance, is that cheap enough considering the risk that, that the many, many, many risks, geometric risk, is that <laughs> cheap enough or, or is that also somewhat concerning? You mean the rest of the world, ex-Europe? Yeah. So ex-Europe, so sort of let's call it developing or Eastern because you can have developed in Eastern as well. Um, there are some parts of the world, like Taiwan's really interesting. Um, and a stock like Taiwan Semi, which is like the Taiwanese stock and a big stock in that part of the world has gotten beat up for so many different reasons. It's derated significantly. It's extreme. So I've owned that for a very, very long time. It's extremely well run. Um, and they are responding appropriately to the shifting trade uh, trading frameworks, if you will. So production moving to different places because of geopolitical risk, um, and it's cheap. So I think there are pockets of cheapness that are interesting, but I don't see it overall. And if I can go back to valuation, I think this is important and this is the nuance that I was referring to. I tried to keep it at broad market, broad market valuation on an, on an inflated number, but let's get into it a little bit. If you look at valuation dispersion, so that's fear on earnings alone, there's a lot of dispersion around fear on earnings. And so what that tells you is the, is the market from a, from a dispersion perspective is, is trying to anticipate um, margin pressure because of inflation on earnings. That's like 87th percentile um, on Denise's work, which is super high. So that's encouraging, right? So that gives me some pause. But then when I look at that same metric on free cash flow, the market is craving free cash flow or craving quality. So that's only like, I don't know, 50th percentile. So that worries me um, in that the market is still sort of latching onto quality, which says there's, there's a measure of fear. What really worries me is that on book value, so on sort of um, systemic risk, so let's call book value dispersion, book value fear is a measure of, is, is a measure of fear around systemic risk. It's still in the 50s. So I want to see both earnings. I want to see fear on earnings and fear on going concern risk in order to get interested. And that's why I come back to this idea that have we had enough panic? And now that I'm trying to be negative, you know, going into Christmas and all this stuff, but that's the kind of investor I am. <laughs> That's why the down capture is 80 and the up capture is 95 to 100. Because to me, when your book value dispersion is like 50 to 55th percentile, you really want to be optimistic. And so you're not seeing you, the market, you're not seeing all the places where there are landmines. And that's not to say that there will be landmines. I recognize Christmas is in a few days and I don't want to talk about landmines, but the way that I invest, I have to I have to think about where there could be landmines. Within the overall discussion of of companies that that fit into the downside capture way of investing that, that you approach things, um, it, like how did the dividends hold up in this kind of earnings, mm -hmm. perhaps overall not coming down in the way that you think might be making it look interesting? I mean, do dividends sort of stay steady in this? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the quintessential right. answer to most questions. Um, I'm really worried. I, I, I've historically, through this entire income discipline, worked on over 10 years. I've always been uh, cautious of 
the idea of investing in high dividends for high dividend sake. And that's a little bit sacrilege because of the type of strategy I run, but I've been very upfront, transparent about this, which is to say dividends are very sensitive to interest rates. So the reason I've had this sort of like caution is because I'm not trying to predict interest rates. They are not very predictable, even by the people who are supposed to predict them. And for good reason, they're, you know, there's a lot of variables going into them and a lot of competing objectives, like employment versus inflation, for instance, where we are today. So because dividends have the sensitivity to the interest rate environment, I try to be really careful not, not living on the edges. So the edges would be very low dividend or very high dividend. And a lot of strategies that are income strategies will just go for the high dividends, irrespective of things like valuation. What I've tried to do is to go for dividends where there is valuation support, because that just actually compounds your, um, it compounds your alpha odds. You add valuation support to anything and your alpha odds go up a lot. Um, so what, I, what makes me extremely nervous about dividends today is if you take equity, yields on equity versus yields on fixed income, and you sort of measure that spread through time and you normalize that spread, meaning you like percentile it through time, it was at a decent percentile. That's the way to kind of like normal, right? A decent percentile in the last several years, low, a lower for longer interest rate environment. So you could be okay taking the risk of investing in higher dividends because essentially you were getting, you're getting your dividends from equity versus fixed income. Right. And because that spread was wide. So today, um, you know, fixed income has gotten crushed. So the yeah. yields are higher. So that percentile today is like in the 40s. It is low. So that puts higher income equities at serious, that's another form of risk, at serious risk. So it sort of, um, it makes me even more leery of going in the direction of higher dividends because um, you just don't have this sort of like, there's, there's better alternatives elsewhere in an asset allocation world. To, to your point, so you're, you're not really asking that question, but I actually think that this is a more important point for the people who are investing for income. You have to be careful because people can now go and get a little bit more from fixed income. Your point about whether dividends will sustain or not um, depends on cash flows, which depends on this scenario. The market really wants a soft landing or a mild recession. And so if you get that, yes, you'll get dividend sustainability. If you get my scenario, not my necessarily desired scenario, but the thing I worry about of geometric risk, risks that multiply, you're going to, that implies free cash flow pressure, which implies dividend pressure. So tell us how if, so if the soft landing and, you know, isn't necessarily there for the offing, which, which is one of the scenarios and there is, you know, pain, how ultimately do you sort of get the growth thesis to grow out of the pain? How, how does that look for you ultimately? Um, the growth thesis to grow, I mean, sorry, I keep coming back to this valuation. Like I would love, the only thing, I, the only stuff I can find is like here and there, a company trading at 15 times, 14 times, 13 times, there's a problem with the company and I have to be willing to accept. And that's been the case for 10 plus years, you have to be willing to accept some sort of like damage to get a decent valuation. And that's okay. It's a, it's a, it's a more grinding way to invest, but it's also fun because you get to invest in damage when nobody else like <laughs> wants to, you build like your stomach. It would be amazing to get like a normal company for 15 times earnings, 14, right. 13 times earnings. That's to me, that's how you go out of it. It's almost initially, right? Like, 
that's how you get a price appreciation <laughs> because your start your starting valuation is tolerable. So where to me where we are today, it's just not widespread that you can get those kinds of valuations. I still have to be willing to accept all kinds of different types of damage, which is okay. I've done that for 10 plus years, but I'd really like a market where I don't know, I can pick up like you know, a 20, 25% ROE company where the cash flow is, there's there's not a whole lot of doubt about the cash flow and I pay, I pay 13 to 15 times for that. That would be amazing. And what would get you there is much higher interest rates. Ah, okay. So interesting. What about if interest rates just had to stay high? I don't think the market is, um, not that I don't think, like you could mathematically prove this. The market is not, that's not what the market is anticipating. The market's, the market. If you put all the pieces together, the market seems to be anticipating a Fed that goes to like five, you know, I'm, I'm referring to, to the U.S. Central Bank because a lot of the world pegs off of that. I'm not trying to be nationalistic. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I'm yeah. sensitive to the audience I'm speaking to not being a U.S. audience, like a lot of the world pegs off of the Fed. So the Fed goes to like five. The market seems to be anticipating that that comes off pretty quickly because inflation subsides pretty quickly. So, so then the Fed very quickly. Um, eases off of that, which could happen. Um, I get nervous when when valuations implying sort of one scenario, because the risk in that is inflation stickier than we anticipate here at 17 ish times, 18 ish times a high number for the market, right? That in inflation stickier than we anticipate, that could be very bumpy for a market at this valuation. Again, if it were at 14, 15 times, different story. We could absorb a, like a range of trajectories for, for inflation subsiding. Right now, I'm not sure this valuation can absorb anything but an inflation that subsides quickly. Hmm. Interesting. And then precipitates cuts, you know, mm -hmm. appropriate. It seems, it seems that's, what the, that, that's what the market is. If you, you got to put a lot of pieces together and look at valuation. It seems that's what we really want to happen. That would be that would be wonderful for economies. Forget markets, right? For jobs and all this stuff. Um, I just worry about how many different risks are out there and how they combine. And that's just me being a conservative downside protection person. Again, what do you think investors might want to be thinking about? There's obviously, uh, I don't know if you would call it regime change. There was a huge change to value investing versus growth. I mean, that that was one of the many stories of this year. There are a lot of them. But this discussion of of looking at the world through maybe an either or lens going forward, is it is it a strong or clear picture to you? Is there what, what is sort of what muddies that either or at the moment in, in your mind? I mean, it is it is a bit reductionist, the value versus growth thing. Um, but like there's nuance in everything, right? I'm a very nuancey person in case you guys haven't figured that out by right. now. <laughs> um, I think you could argue that post GFC and certainly three to four decades of rates going down have, have been really helpful to longer duration stuff. And definitely post GFC where the decrease in rates accelerated. So to the extent so let's call that a, a rate distortion that really supported long duration stuff and frankly supported so much amazing innovation across the world and definitely in America and the Western world. Like we can't live without all these apps now and all these services and all this stuff. 
that has been the byproduct of distortion in interest rates. So I totally give it up that distortion in interest rates has not been the evil, the entire evil that value people like to make it out to be. Like we all have benefited tremendously from it in the way we live our lives. Let's just make a note of that. So if, if you're willing to believe that, then um, you could argue that there is the risk of some regime change into more normalized interest rates, which potentially is a function of more sticky inflation like is it you know the fed really wants two percent but let's say they hang out at four for a while and it ends up being three and it was like sort of maybe zero-ish before zero to one like what does that mean for the interest rate picture and what does that mean for longer versus shorter duration you probably get more balance and i'd like to think we get more we go back to more of a stock picking type market as opposed to a factor market it's been a factor market for a really you had to get really good at factors in the last 10 plus years um so perhaps the emphasis is certainly in developed markets that are highly efficient the emphasis on factors and therefore portfolio construction has been huge so in a market that balances out more where both you know some sort of mid-duration stuff does really well <laughs> maybe that's more of a stock picking market and that is bullish for at least relative to the last 10 years that's pretty positive for more valuation oriented investing other sectors or regions around the world where there, there are more opportunities for stronger dividends. Um, does the story kind of fit together in some way internationally? Dividends, what do you see there? Stronger dividends, ex-US. Uh, you know, the UK has always been a really nice place to invest because you get you get a nice a nice balance between capital. Um, investment and capital return, which is the essence of the question, capital return in the form of dividends. So you get um, good quality companies <clears throat> that um, balance, you know, growth. You get basically growth and in income type stocks, yeah. which is nice when you get them at good valuations. Uh, so today in the UK, there are quite a lot of high quality companies with really fat dividends because they're cheap. So you, you do, you are getting this cheapness and quality combination um and I've, I've spent a lot of time there both literally but also thinking about investing there so when i think about places in the world that continue that are even more interesting the uk is interesting but it's caught up in all this europe stuff <laughs> so yeah. yeah so your valuation to me your valuation uh thresholds just need to be stricter i think because you've got you've got sort of compounding risk um, and then there, as I mentioned, Taiwan, there are parts of Asia that have a lot of fear in the markets because of China, because of, you know, Chinese um, approach to geopolitics, Chinese approach to how the country is being run in this sort of more autocratic way um, that could be really interesting to the extent we're legitimately coming out of COVID zero. Interesting. So one of the positives could be, is it possible that coming out of COVID zero, China again, similar to like 2016, like pulls the world out of it. When we're getting the, when we were getting the industrial materials and energy recession in, 20, in late 2015, China essentially pulled the world out of it. And so it ended up being a very um, uh, sector localized recession as opposed to a whole recession because China started spending again. So that's one of the bull cases for coming out of COVID zero. I'm not sure. Um, so I, I tend to believe it when I see it. Um, again, downside protection investor, not upside capture investor. Um, 
so there's some cheap stuff over there that is interesting to me. Okay. And cheap stuff, there's the valuation. That's how we started. That's, that's what you think about all the time. And it's sort of how you round out uh, interesting, um, just sort of looking out to 2023 as one of the things. So, okay, just to wrap it up in a bow, um, 2023 valuation risk, um, what do we need to so it's not, to me, it's not obvious. I, maybe I'll wrap it up by talking about time with Joel, um, because that's been really, that's influenced me a lot in, in the, you know, 10, 20 years at Fidelity, 20 years at Fidelity, 10 years, 10 plus years managing diversified money, and then the last three to five years of just really tricky markets. So all in Joel, one minute. Yeah. <laughs> Joel and I um, went through these like big, big value line books. He used to work for Value Line and he keeps the Value Line books. And we were trying to just think through what's an analog. And we were looking at the late 60s into the 70s with inflation, even as inflation was decelerating as it is today. And, you know, even the, the antidotes to, to that scenario back then were growth and quality. And even those guys like derated from 20 something times to like five to 10 times earnings. And it was a relative game because the worst stuff derated even worse, like to three times earnings. And there's no survivorship bias in when you're looking at a book from the 70s, right? Or from the 80s or whatever. So that was really instructive to me that um, there's still risk in valuation. There really is. And I've, I'm still at the margin or way beyond the margin, like defensive and quality oriented. And especially if I can find that, as I mentioned in the UK, with some valuation support, I think taking a five plus year view, even a three plus year view on names like that will get us a lot of alpha and certainly risk adjusted alpha in that time frame. Ramona Prasad, you are fantastic. Wish you and your family the very best over the holiday season and see you in the new year. Thank you. Nice to spend time with you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.